0: listening to Neurosalience, the OHBM podcast. Welcome to the Organization for Human Brain Mapping Neurosalience podcast. I'm your host, Peter Banatini. Here, I interview brain scientists of all types to discuss their work, as well as the latest developments, issues, and controversies in the field of brain mapping. Today's podcast is very special. Functional MRI is a profoundly successful and powerful technique that many of us use. It's still developing and adding to our insight about the human brain. While MRI was developed in the late 1970s and early 80s, it would be another decade before it was realized that MRI could be used to detect and map non-invasively human brain activation. My guests today, Ken Kwong, Bob Turner, and Ravi Menon, were among the first who showed this capability. Ken's successful experiment in early May of 1991 was arguably the first. Ravi, who was a key player in the Minnesota group, had produced solid fMRI results by the summer of 1991. I had my first successful experiment in September of 1991. Bob Turner was a key player in his physiologic manipulation experiments in in CATS. He collaborated with Ken uh, on his first work, and he also showed results of his own at Ford Tesla, at the NIH shortly after. And we were all there at the Society for Magnetic Resonance Imaging meeting in San Francisco in August of 1991, when Tom Brady, who headed MGH, the MGH NMR Center at the time, first showed in his plenary lecture a crude, but stunning and actually draw-dropping uh, brain activation movie, uh, the first one shown in public. Uh, using fMRI, and that was, uh, uh, at that moment, the moment I saw that, I was in the audience, Uh, I knew that I wanted, what I wanted to do for the rest of my career. So we have them all here to reflect on those uh, very intense, very heady days, and also to reflect on what led up to their findings, and a little bit of reflection on, on the present state and the future of fMRI. So just to give you some quick background, uh, Dr. Ken Kwong has been you know, conducting MRI research at the Mass General Hospital since the late 80s when he pioneered diffusion imaging as well as perfusion imaging approaches. He's currently associate professor at the MGH Martino Center. Dr. Bob Turner, he actually trained with the inventor of echo planar imaging, Peter Mansfield, among others, And while working at the NIH, he was actually a staff uh, scientist at the NIH, he performed those first critical experiments, demonstrating bold contrast, as well as obtaining his results at four Tesla, using his home-built gradient coil. One of Bob's major contributions to the field was his early work in gradient coil design, which remains fundamental to what we all do right now. From 2006 to 2014, he was director of the Department of Neurophysics at the Max Planck Institute for Human Cognitive and Brain Sciences in Leipzig. And he's currently retired and living in Cambridge, England. So Dr. Ravi Menon was a postdoc at Minnesota, as I mentioned, and a driving force uh, uh, in the effort to produce functional images uh, using at their institute a, a highly challenging non-echoplanar imaging approach at 4Tesla. He's been a steady contributor to fMRI method development ever since. And uh, he's currently a Robarts scientist and Canada research chair in functional magnetic resonance imaging, co-scientific director of BrainsCan, CAN, which is Canada First Research ex- funds, Excellence Fund, scientific director of the Center for Functional and Metabolic Mapping, and Professor of med- Medical Biophysics, Medical Imaging and Psychiatry at the University of Western Ontario. So we're, we're so lucky to have them all here. You know, all of us have known each other uh, for about 30 years and we're all good friends. And we're all talking at, on this podcast about one of our favorite subjects. So enjoy the conversation. Thanks for coming on the show, Uh, Bob Turner, Ravi Menon, and Ken Kwong. And this is a a, a really special episode, I think, at least to to me, in that it sort of uh, takes three people who were fundamental to the development of fMRI in their very early days and and throughout the last 30 years. It's been about 30 years. Plus or minus um, since the first experiments were done, the first bold experiments were done successfully. And so it's a good time to sort of uh, revisit that. And, uh, you know, all of us have become friends over the years. We've, we've known each other. And, uh, and, and fMRI actually, just to, before I get into the questions, um, you know, to me, fMRI was a, was a kind of a unique discovery. It wasn't like, it wasn't a discovery in a sense of, you know, discovering a new thing in biology, uh, uh, but And it wasn't sort of like developing from first principles some technology. It was sort of like, you know, taking a new technology and figuring out uh, a new capability of it based on an insight about physiology as well. So you understand that, you know, the physics of the technology, you, you, you sort of understand or have hunches about the physiology. And then it all came together. And, and the field wasn't really doing that. At the time, most of everyone else was, you know, trying to make the images better. Uh, MRI was still relatively new and uh, clinically applicable and not many people, except for, you know, the three of you and, and maybe about maybe 10 other people were thinking along those lines. But, um, uh, and, and of course there was a little bit of uh, serendipity involved. And so I just like to start off the questions um, just by, you uh, You know, just saying that you know, all of us, you know, we're we're thinking hard about this, and all of you. I was just a graduate school student. I was trying to figure out what to do. Um, But where, you know, maybe talk about a little bit the very beginning, and and you know, what was the combination of serendipity and you know things that you were working towards to make you optimally ready uh, to 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 make this insight and discovery. So anyone can start off first.
1: Yeah, I, uh, I suppose I can, I'm, I'm the oldest guy here, so. Okay. Um, <laughs> the, my um, excitement about the possibility of mapping function in the human brain really was started back in 1978 when I read a paper by, in Scientific American by Lassen and Ingvar using Xenon as a tracer. And it it struck me quite forcibly then that that would be a very interesting thing to do. But this was even before I got into MRI. Um, But um, um, it it was, in the circumstances, um, I was starting to get very interested in, in brain function in relation to social anthropology. Because I've been studying Anthropology and doing fieldwork in uh, community study in, in social anthropology, and I was starting to wonder just exactly how universal um, uh, the operations of the human brain actually were across across cultures. And I, it struck me that that um, having a tool like um, like what the spectre was at the time would actually um, give us a, a, a chance to see whether to what extent people think alike, even if they're using different language and have different customs, etc. So that, that was the interesting spur for this. But, um, it was when I learned about MRI in the, in the early 1980s, um, that I began to think, well, hey, maybe MRI could do this without using um cyclotrons and um, a lot of radiation and so on, it's just faintly possible. That, where I could actually look at the human brain in operation. So it was then that I saw, a. now this is a real serendipity bit. Uh, One Sunday afternoon, I was actually at the beach in East Lothian, and uh, I had a copy of the Sunday newspaper with me, the Observer, and I was just idly scanning the back page of it, which had jobs on it. And there was this job going with Peter Mansfield at Nottingham. And I, I thought to myself, well, that would be very interesting to, to do, it was only a two-year temporary lectureship, um, but it might give me the chance to learn something about this technique, which I've been hearing about. I've actually seen an MRI scanner in Edinburgh, one of the very first to be installed already. So I went down to Nottingham and immediately fell in love with TPI when I saw it in operation. and. Um, so that that, that was a, a amazing thing to see this tiny little ad in his paper, which changed my life. And so serendipity, serendipity. So, yeah, I think that's probably enough for me um, on that subject. Um, um, but now I'll carry on talking about how these things develop later on, but uh, sounds, give us a turn now.
0: Sounds good. I just want to quickly interject, I mean, there's. You know, I talked to a lot of people and that Lassen article really had an effect on a lot of people. I remember it came out when I was in grade school, but I think I saw it in high school and it was it, it really riveted me. I remember looking at, you know, I think it was in Scientific American. And I remember and it sort of planted a seed in my mind um, yeah. to what I wanted to do later. And that was just so important. So,
2: yeah, uh, maybe Ken. Oh, Wow. You know, when I first came to MGH, I was a postdoc doing PET, and then and then the modeling became too complicated. I thought, you know, maybe I want to do something more uh, easier, you know, <laughs> or at least. Uh, and I thought the MRI could be very interesting because it has all these different parameters, you know, T1, T2, who knew what they were, you know. Whereas PET, it just work with perfusion and uh, a couple of things seem to be more limited. So I, I, I switched to MRI. And then one thing I realized was in MRI, there were no ready way to measure perfusion. And of course, in PET, perfusion is the thing, you know, was the thing at that time. So, so I, from the beginning, I was looking for a way to measure perfusion with MRI. Maybe when was that? 80, 88? I uh, can't remember when I moved from PET to MRI. You know? I think 87, I came to MTH. <clears throat> so, but but it turns out I wasn't doing perfusion in the beginning. I was doing diffusion with uh, Daisy Chen, right? Daisy was a graduate student at the time. And uh, and I didn't know any, by the way, I didn't know anything about MRI when I moved to MRI. It's just, uh, they were the same imaging technology. That's all I knew of. And I went to talk to uh, uh, my boss uh, you know. And at that time, and he said, okay, yeah, just come on in and try to see what you can learn. And uh, so, so there was Tom Brady at that time. Yep. And uh, anyway, so I, I did diffusion for two years and I thought it was pretty successful. And at that time I but accidentally, I found an isotropy because uh, Daisy was trying to image me as a subject. And I happened to turn my head one way And my uh, corpus sclerosum, internal capsule, looked completely different than when I turned my head the other way. So there was an accidental discovery of uh, diffusion and isotropy with MRI, I think it was 89. And so it was very successful. And then uh, Daisy even published an abstract on it, but she didn't publish an article because then she went to Germany for postdoc, right? Which was unfortunate. Yeah. for us anyway, <laughs> because we, we missed a lot of opportunity and diffusion. So then I, and after Daisy left, I, uh, uh, I was still focused on trying to, in addition to diffusion, I was trying to do some more thing about perfusion. And then um LeBihan's article came out, right, on the IVIM. And everybody was very really excited. Yeah? There's finally a way to measure perfusion maybe, you know. Uh, small small uh, capillary uh, change signal change, mm-hmm. then 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 I s- decided to re- reproduce it, and at that time most of my uh, work was done on animals like uh, rabbits, and so and I I happened to be working on a stroke model, you know, uh, so I, I that's one of my earliest work was in stroke uh, in animals not in human, <clears throat> and. Uh, Then anyway, then I said, I want to reproduce uh, the Behan's work. Maybe it it showed me something. Then I I ran some CO2 because I read somewhere. I forgot where I read it. Oh, hold on a second. Sorry. No problem. Um, God damn. Anyway, okay. (laughs) That's all right. (laughs) I hang up my phone. There's an (laughs) edit. <laughs> <laughs> and where was I, I was talking about uh, oh uh, the IVIM. Yes. So I ran some uh, CO2 experiment, and I didn't remember where I saw that CO2 was good for uh, increasing blood flow. I, I did learn that. Then surprisingly, the the exponential that Lebihan talked about that when you increase defusion, uh, perfusion, you will see the, uh, the uh, larger. Uh, uh, first part of the device exponential I didn't see any change, you know, uh, and I knew that CO2 should yeah. change flow a lot. Then I decided that the, the, yeah. the two-by-exponential really due to CSF mixing, it has nothing to do with perfusion. Go ahead,
1: Bob. Uh, Bob. yes, you want to say something? I just wanted to comment that, of course, uh, uh, once I started working with Danila Bihanna in 1988 in, at NIH, um, this was our big goal: is to use IVIM to measure perfusion in in the brain, changes in perfusion. And it was very, very frustrating because actually, to use IVIM to measure flow in the brain, you quite have to have really, really high sensitivity. Um, uh, it's just a, a difficult thing to measure, and there was. A very good paper by Jim Picard that pointed out just how, how tricky it was to actually get that second exponential term accurately enough that you could do anything with it. So, But that was, of course, was the hardware and software standards of the time, which have improved enormously since then. And now we see IVIM being used for <clears throat> blood flow measurements in other organs of the body quite frequently. Yes. And that, that's great. But it, it was just a tough target to do it in the brain.
0: Yeah, just to, just to clarify for everyone listening who's who doesn't know what IVM, it's called intervoxal incoherent motion and put forth mm-hmm. by Danila Bihana. We actually just interviewed, I actually just interviewed me a couple of weeks ago. Um, and it's essentially, you know, using very small diffusion weighting and assuming random mm-hmm. orientation of capillaries mimics diffusion. So if you're sensitive to very, rapid diffusion or slow flow through capillaries It, you know any changes in that would show up in IVIM, but it's incredibly hard so yeah anyway he, and actually I was also when I was before bold I was trying to do IVM in a completely you know way that was never would never work so um but yeah Ken go on yeah.
2: I I was actually perfect uh, situated to do IVIM because, like I said, I have been doing diffusion for two years, right? And we are probably one of the first teams, maybe uh, not as good as Bob's team, uh, in doing diffusion, uh, MR diffusion at that time. And so I was very confident I could have all the equipment, all the tools, all the sequences to to reproduce uh, his result. Well, I did not get the exponential, of course. But then, as I said, I didn't see a change uh, with uh, CO two, uh, and 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 then. Uh, so so I was really excited about IVIM for perfusion. I thought, oh, that's it, you know, finally I, I found a way. But I was somewhat disappointed you know, from them. Then, and I, I think, uh, you know, i was thinking, you know, what other ways can we see something? Then, then I missed, I then I met uh, Keith Thorborn. He was a uh, postdoc at that time. I, I don't know who He he was with. Uh, What's up? Uh, I don't think a postdoc of Bruce, maybe, maybe Tom Brady. Uh, for some reason, I he was a very nice guy, but uh, we hadn't done that much work together. And he, he he was talking to me suddenly, oh, you know, something about uh, the oxygen globin T2 star. You know? To be honest, I haven't read his work at the time. I don't know what he was talking about, <laughs> then so he's kind of mentioning passing, you know, when I had a casual conversation and I realized that maybe, you know, there's a marker in the oxymoclobin that we can we can uh, do something about blood flow. It's strictly just from that conversation. At that time, I haven't uh, read about Sage's work. Uh, to be honest, I, I didn't know, I hadn't had a chance to read Sage's work yet. So yeah. the oxymoclobin idea and relate to, uh, blood, something about blood, not just a blood flow, but something in the blood. Uh, to me, I learned that from Keith, right?
0: I also recall yeah. uh, reading that you had a meeting in Chicago where uh, you had a uh, you, you were talking to Bob about something uh, re- related to that. Um, yeah, I would go with that. Yeah.
2: It was, it was after I, I talked with Keith on the other side. Yeah. Now, then of course, uh, everybody was thinking that with the oxygen hemoglobin with um, a change in blood flow, increase in blood flow, the brain would go dark, you know, because the de- oxygen it cause a loss of signal, right? It, a T2 star. Uh, so, so I was kind of thinking, right? run the experiment, and because I was doing CO2 already, so I knew I, I, I could test whether that thing works, you know. And in fact, before the uh, human work, I did uh, do uh, CO2 work on animals. Uh, I I think part of that work was in the paper in the in the um, in the original paper. So I yeah. mentioned that the, uh, there's a curve uh, graph on CO2. So I was doing CO2 long before I did human, at least a year, maybe uh, several months before I did human. So I was expecting I would see a flow change uh, when there's more flow, more volume. I see a change, a dropping signal, right? Then I went to uh, um, that conference, uh, the predecessor I I SMIM, you know, it was the SMRI. I can't remember what that conference. Yeah, had,
1: yeah.
2: Uh, where Bob yeah. had that poster, right? Then that was
1: uh, April of nineteen
2: ninety-one. It was. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, yeah. And then again, like I said, I I didn't know about Seiji's work at that time. So when I look at Bob's poster to be honest, I didn't even. See Sage's work on his poster because I was saw as Bob Turner's, you know, work. And then he, of course, he he showed the uh, uh, the, the poor animal under hypoxia. You know, I thought was like choking the animals. <laughs> <laughs> the signal instead of going down, it went up. You know, and he explained why. You know, uh, and, and in the poster. So then, ah, then maybe I should expect the signal go up. You know, so that's certainly. Uh, uh, Bob's paper that gave me an idea what to expect in my signal, right? I think most people, like I think uh, Peter, you mentioned, you expect the signal to go down too, right? Uh, uh, yeah, I was <laughs> looking forward to. Go- I wasn't sure when I saw Tom Brady's movie which
0: way the subtraction was. So, yeah, yeah.
2: Um, but you but know, even Ogawa suggested
0: briefly in his paper that it might go down. Yeah, uh, and and my
3: first yeah. notes were always subtraction of, of the uh, task from the baseline, not the baseline from the task.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah it, was, it was paradoxical, but the, the effect of, of hypoxia on the cat brain was really to make the gray matter go very dark. But what um, I remember struck Ken when, he, when we were discussing the data I was showing was what happened when you restored the oxygen to the, to the cat, instead of breathing pure nitrogen, it was then breathing the normal mixture. And that's when the signal overshot. That's when the signal came back up and it went up to a higher level. And that, that triggered Ken to think, right, this may be what happens <clears throat> when we actually have brain activation. And I remember him saying this at the time, and I remember um, sounding surprised that he should think that. But then I also remember him coming up very soon after that with the finding by Marcus Rachel that maybe um, the the oxygen demand doesn't increase that much, but the blood flow increases a lot.
2: Yeah. Yeah, that paper was already out. Yeah. I think Pat was lucky that he... Didn't uh, choke the animals so much. Uh, <laughs> uh, so hypoxic that the pulse <laughs> would go down. Uh, it will overcome the flow signal. So he did it just right. So there you see the initial uh, flush of increased blood flow, but not so hypoxic that you, you lost oxygen so much. You know, so it was so, somewhat of a, uh, a bit of luck that we saw this go up. Yeah, of course, you know, but but do you ex- expect the signal to? Uh, post signal to have gone up after under hypoxia before he did experiment.
1: No, he did, but it never did go up and under hypoxia, it? It, yeah. only, it only went up after the hypoxia was over. Yeah, yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. So, but anyway, so, so to finish my story, then uh, after I saw Bob, I, I at least had an expectation when the signal would go, you know. So, then, then we since I did. C or the CO2 uh, with CO2 or this rise at that time, we didn't call the O signal, just rise in MI signal with a uh, green echo uh, EPI sequence. Of course, thanks to EPI. Without EPI, I would not have been able to do anything. Yeah. I don't think I would have the sensitivity to see things because I did run the regular gradient echo sequence uh, and I didn't see any change. You know, uh, uh, yep. At least one point five T, you know. Yeah, the multi
0: shot and
2: four T and- was better, but uh, one point five I didn't see anything. So 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 the coincidence to make this whole thing work is EPI for for our, from our center. Without EPI, I wouldn't have seen anything. Then we decided since I seen an animal with CO two, I saw the MRI signal go up. So I go, oh, something must be changing with the blood flow. Then I want to do some animal experiment. Uh, a human, human experiment. And then that's where the method came in. It was a single experiment, immediate success, you know, one, one, one run. Uh, and of course, the visual stimulation, thanks to uh, Jack, right? I mean, he already did the visual stimulation. We know what to do to activate the brain. It's very simple. Uh, and so that's where it came from. But I'll, I'll let uh, uh, Ravi talk about his experience. Yeah.
3: Yeah, Robbie. Yeah, so so my perspective was was quite different than the the way Bob and and Ken came at it. Um, You know, I I came into my master's at the Montreal Neurological Institute with an NMR background already. Um, I was kind of a poor student and I so I volunteered for a a PET scan because they paid $500. um, And I was still kind of thinking about you know what 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 would I do for a thesis project and everything so I took part in this pet scan and and the number of lines they put into me and 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 the little radiation detector they were measuring my thyroid and all I decided yikes, (laughs) yeah exactly so (laughs) yikes I don't want to do pet uh so instead I I did a project in relaxometry um at um well became probably the first field dependent strength um, relaxometry study completely by accident, because it was a, a Phillips half Tesla system, uh, which quenched halfway through my thesis, and it was replaced with a one and a half T systems, so I had to redo all my measurements. And so I had, you know, just manganese chloride and all of these uh, phantoms that people used to use and, and simple phantoms for T1 and T2. And then I went off to, to do uh, my PhD with um, Peter Allen, another Nottingham uh, alumnus uh, who was at the University of Alberta. And, and that work was, was more structural. Um, it was multi-exponential analysis of the water signal um, in crayfish nerve cords and cat brains and things like that. And um, that's where myelin water fraction imaging came from. So we were able to show that the shortest T2 component um, corresponded to water in the myelin layers, and I showed that with electron microscopy, and I, I showed that if you desiccated the tissue, or actually I did this in, in logs and lumber as well, okay. that you could make that component uh, go away. Um, and in, in the lumber studies, uh, in the wood sample studies, that was done at such high spatial resolution with a, with a gradient that Paul Callahan actually built, a one-dimensional gradient where I could do radial imaging, um, you could actually see directly where that water was coming from. So at the end of my PhD work, which was all imaging, um, you know, I was looking around Uh, for a postdoc, and and Peter Allen has suggested that I should probably learn some spectroscopy. So, you know, I wrote to George Rada and Paul Bottomley and and Truman and uh, George Shulman and all all the classic names, and I got offers at all those places. Uh, I'm not sure it was because I was any good, but I had my own money. I had a a fellowship, so anybody will take you at that point. and this guy who I would never heard of before, Camille Ugerbill. Um, uh, I was told that you should maybe go talk to him because he's going to get this very high field MRI scanner. And um, he's very interested in cardiac spectroscopy. And, and this might be the place to go. And so I met, uh, met Camille at a, at a smrm meeting and we talked and i liked him he was uh you know uh he was not quite 40 i think at the time uh maybe 39 and uh, so i decided okay i'm going to go to minnesota and minnesota was relatively close to canada so it you know it seemed like you know not not too far from home uh and so i went to minnesota to to do my postdoc and camille um got the 4T, the 4T was damaged in transit. So I actually did quite a bit of initial animal work on his 4.7T. And that's when I first heard of of Bob Turner um, because I was trying to get EPI to work on that scanner. And Bob had written this very clever application note for GE CSI Omega uh, animal scanner that had all the tricks of the trade in it and so I basically tried to replicate that on the Cisco. This is the variant console um, uh, that Camille had. And by early uh, 1991, uh, the uh, 4T had been repaired. Um, they had to get a welder from Germany and he needed a work permit. And so it was a bit of a, a <laughs> roundabout way to finally get things working. Um, And I started doing cardiac spectroscopy uh, and it was very far from the brain. But he had mentioned to me Seiji's work. They had known each other from uh, their days at Bell Labs and had been talking about using high field imaging. Uh, Well, what was then ultra high field uh, was now just high field, I guess, Um, imaging, because this so-called bold effect was, was going to be amplified at higher fields and uh but of course being there to learn spectroscopy i was kind of thinking of it more from the spectroscopy angle and in fact it theoretically could work in spectroscopy so what i think almost nobody knows is the fact that in myoglobin and hemoglobin there is a peak that is way off from water whose amplitude and and line width depends on oxygenation (laughs) Ah, see, I'm surprising a bunch of people here. Bob may know it, because Bob knows everything. <laughs> but um, it's a very, very tiny peak. It is very, very hard <laughs> to see. Uh, you can see the effect in muscle, um, but nobody has ever reported this in brain, even to this day. And um, so I was thinking about it in that perspective. But of course, Seiji had used flash. Um, And as Ken just mentioned, you know, at at low field, flash has basically no chance, but at high field, because bold is bigger, it can compensate for some of the instabilities that come from flash. So uh, I had also been working on developing stable flash sequences on the Minnesota 4T because nothing was stable on that system at the time. It had unshielded gradients. And it had all kinds of problems with current stability and and so on. There was hysteresis in the current monitoring loops, the so-called LEMS, as Siemens called them. Uh, So it was a big fight. And I was developing FLASH, again, not for brain imaging, but for cardiac imaging, because if you're gonna do cardiac spectroscopy, you have to know where the heart is, of course, and you have to be able to plan your voxel. So that's what I was working on. And then Camille said, you know, we, we really need to start working on this um fMRI well it wasn't called fMRI and this, this t2 star weighted brain imaging and so I actually did my first experiment um on March 7th um, I actually sent my lab book picture to Peter a few weeks ago um unrelated to this um, and it was a disaster so unlike Ken who had his first experiment work I have two pages of everything that didn't work uh, in terms of the noise, in terms of, I, we looked in the wrong direction for the signal. Um, I used um, grass goggles that were taped to the RF coil, and they fell off the coil. And I, I, that's noted in my, uh, um, you know, so it was a complete disaster. But, you know, it was a block design experiment. It was, it was exactly what everybody else ultimately used. You know, it's 30 seconds on, 30 seconds mm-hmm. off, or one minute on, one minute off, I forget. Um, repeated three or four times, um, but it was all just so noisy that it had no chance of working and, and it wasn't for several months afterwards, I would say, uh, before the first convincing data came and that, that was mostly for me trying to tame all, all the demons of this, you know, brand new system that uh, had um, never really been shaken down before and, and so on. And it was still all done with flash uh, yeah Bob
1: yeah so I just wanted to comment when you were talking about the unshielded gradients and all that difficulty uh, I just wanted to comment how important it was that the two test animal scanner at NIH had had the benefit of having installed these prototype um, shielded gradients. Um, that made it possible for me to do EPI on that scanner. I mean, you've just mentioned that sequence that I developed. Of course, that sequence was originally for doing diffusion because I was working with uh, Danilo Bihan, and we were looking at cats. And it was really, this is the other bit of serendipity I could mention, which is that it was the, the occasion when I carried on scanning after I'd euthanized the cat. Um, using a it was, it was a gradient echo, EPI sequence with diffusion gradients, but um, it was bipolar gradients. Um, so I found that, to my surprise, not only did the diffusion change, the slope of the diffusion, you know, versus b, curve change, but the intercept changed mm-hmm. uh, when the animal was dead. So it was like grey matter went dark. And then that was the moment when I realized, hey, this is what um, Seiji Ogawa was talking about. Yeah, that, yeah. That's so what f- that's what inspired me to do the hypoxia experiment that inspired Ken. So um, that that's that's the train of.
3: Yeah. So yeah, the, the interesting thing about that the sign thing is so so Seiji yeah. had talked with Marcus Raykel, Um Sort of in this intervening time from when when I had first tried an experiment, um, as well as David Tank, and uh, was beginning to think that this this mismatch between flow and oxygen might actually you know make the signal go positive instead of negative. But we we still weren't entirely convinced on that. But um, the the original truth to that um, or was actually done in the 1950s and 60s. If you look at Wilder Penfield's surgical notes, uh, when he was stimulating the brain, uh, you know, prior to uh, excision of a temporal lobe or something. So he's doing his precortical mapping. He wrote uh, that when he stimulated the brain, that the brain blushed. And what he was referring to was the fact that the blood got redder. So he was doing an optical imaging experiment and of course, even at that point, people knew blood got redder when it was oxygenated. And so anybody who had read Penfield's surgical notes would know that when there was brain activity, there was hyperoxygenation. Uh, but of course, that was all lost to time for the most part. Yeah. And, and so nobody noticed that, but uh, any student of that would have realized it. And
1: that. that- that finding was brought back to life by uh, Miriam Grinwald with his beautiful studies on monkey brain, and, uh, which was looking at the intrinsic signal um, of um, oxygenation using a cranial window and optical yeah. techniques.
0: Yeah.
1: And I went to visit uh, Miriam in um, in Israel at the um, at the Weizmann Institute in about 1990. Ninety-four, I think it was, to compare notes with him about all of that um, and uh, about bold, and and that was um, for me. That was made it all completely. I was completely convinced that. that
3: yeah. So you know, I I had it, talked it to was, him quite a bit yeah, yeah. even prior to that because uh, a lot of his intrinsic optical imaging work was inspirational for me, looking at things like the initial dip, and also he used ocular dominance columns as the model system for measuring resolution and I adopted exactly that because I figured if if it works for optical imaging, we need to make it work for bold because otherwise this technique isn't going to be all that great at a high spatial resolution, which of course was the advantage of MRI over PET.
1: Yeah.
0: So, so I, even though I came in a little bit later in the game, I mean, you know, I, and also, I mean, for me, at least there was serendipity all over the place. I was, you know, like I said, I was a graduate student. I was in my second year, I was looking for a good project. You know, I was playing with the IVIM with, with standard flash techniques and not working. And, you know, my one big serendipitous thing, I was in the department of Jim Hyde. Uh, He was developing hardware, uh, Eric Wong was probably the, the most serendipitous uh, thing. Um, Eric just, you know, was creating gradient coils. He was writing pulse sequences. He was trying to look at perfusion. And, you know, it was interesting right before the ISMRM meeting where, where Tom Brady gave his talk. Uh, you know, I was working on ways of, you know having B factors of 50 and trying to do subtraction images wasn't working. And Eric was, he developed this, this this, uh, you know, certain perfusion sequence that had uh, like a Shaw pulse for the 90 and, and 180 that kind of worked. But he wanted to demonstrate it in people, uh, but he needed echoplanar imaging. And so literally, you know, a month before or even three weeks before the meeting, he's like, well, I have to build a head grading coil to, to do this on humans. And so, uh, you know, before the meeting, I helped him out. We, we worked for about, uh, you know, three days straight. We built our head grading coil in three days you optimize the sequence, and so he kind of got that working and never really panned out because it was more sensitive to motion but um but yeah, and then and then we went to ISRM and yeah, August twelfth was Tom Brady's talk. I think I traced it back to August twelfth of nineteen ninety one and and we were in the audience. I think all of us were in the audience. And, yeah uh, it was just uh, uh, an incredible experience. and then after that, uh, you know. Uh, everything sort of came together. I, I studied Ogawa's papers. I studied even all susceptibility and imaging. I, I looked at Bob's uh, paper, I think, who came out around that and, uh, with, with, uh, uh, with cat brains. And um, yeah, and, and, I, and, and it, I remember uh, even Hyde was a little bit skeptical, you know, thinking this isn't really a thesis project, just kind of trying to image thoughts. And, and it was quickly realized that um, we were onto something uh, big, so
2: yeah, great. Skeptical yeah. is the right word because before I did the uh, human experiment, I knew the signal is going to be very small, and and I didn't know how small. And there's no guarantee that uh, we expect to see anything. That's why the uh, okay. May third experiment was so sensational to me. Anyway, there's something completely unexpected, and then it because yeah. we we. I, at that time, I just learned uh, the technique of image subtraction online with a uh, Bridget Bansley. She showed me how to do it. You know, right? I think the day when I was collecting data, I wasn't expecting to analyze data right there, but but she told me how to do it uh, right there that day. So when I collect the uh, the off on off on thing, no, I think I just did the off on. I don't remember. If I have went on off and I had to look at paradigm again. Uh, <laughs> so and I could analyze it right away and you could see the visual cortex just light up you know the signal yeah. Just up. yeah I think you so, know
3: once once the flash got more stable that became uh very easy to do so for us you know the signal at four Tesla was very much larger so that was the only saving grace because you know the the standard deviation you know the temporal variation from shot to shot or from image to image in in flash was you know one or two percent easily but the bowl change was was four or five percent actually sometimes it was eight or nine percent this was the other serendipitous thing because we used flash we had high resolution and it became instantly clear that the ball response was driven by large vessels and that the smaller changes that were coming from the cortex were kind of distinct from that and that was what i then went on to do the multi-echo experiments with and and mm-hmm. show how they behave while as with api at the time the resolution was was quite a bit poorer and you couldn't really make that distinction you could do it in other ways through perfusion and diffusion weighting like peter actually did in his thesis where he put a mild diffusion gradient to try to crush uh, some of the fast-flowing signal, but those were sort of indirect ways. Uh, but you could literally see the the vessels on the surface and, and the vessels in the sulcus were the brightest
0: things that that you had to see, and that was the big advantage for flash. Yeah, just to add really quickly, I have to give Alan Song credit for uh, doing the diffusion weighting and getting rid of the intravascular signal. But I did a lot of other things in my thesis. I think I did may have done that experiment, but. Yeah, I did multi-echo. I did spin echo great echo comparisons, all kinds of things, but
1: yeah. I I remember that. (laughs) (laughs) I I just wanted to comment uh, uh, add to what Ravi was saying about 4Tesla because I was very frustrated for a while at NIH because I wanted to be doing the same experiments in the second half of uh, 1991, but we couldn't get EPI going properly on the 4T. I just (laughs) it. I've been moved into the 4T, I moved into Bob Balaban's lab, and he he was really excited about the possibility of doing this kind of thing at, at 4T. And there was supposed to be a heart machine, and but we couldn't we couldn't just get the the uh, scanner uh, interface to do it. But I mean, eventually, we got a CSI uh, Omega interface. We we hooked that up to the 4T, which is what I've been using at 2T, and then. we've <laughs> Then we, then we were there, and I also had Peter Jezard, who was one of the best uh, postdocs one can imagine having, um, yeah, who could write yeah. all this software for doing image subtraction and all this. And, yeah. and so he was the first subject in February of 1992, at 40 on our system. We got EPI going one day, the next day we put him in and we, we borrowed some uh, grass goggles from somewhere and the experiment worked like a child when we had like 20% signal change. I think, yeah, yeah I mean,
3: EPI was, was, was very much the, <laughs> the facilitating technology and associated with that shielded gradients because EPI just doesn't work without them. So the
1: well, one thing I have to... Head gradients. This was a head gradient. This is my single axis head gradient. Yeah, It didn't need shielding. It was small enough so that's what we eventually
3: had in minnesota we had so siemens provided an asymmetric head gradient which was you know 35 centimeters or something in diameter and you have to remember that 4t had a bore of 1.25 meters so there were no eddy currents from that head gradient and and that and then xiaoping Hu actually wrote the reconstruction software uh for the epi i think i wrote the pulse sequence he wrote the recon code and boom all of a sudden 4t was living up to its promise of uh uh which is actually promise is interesting because you know there were three initial four t's jerry pohost bob balaban and camille they were all for cardiac but actually at least two of them were, were completely devoted to, to fMRI and brain imaging almost instantly, you know, and, and not a whole lot of cardiac ever came
0: out of either one of them. Yeah, and I just yeah. have to add, I just have to add really quickly is that, you know, we, we, of course the ANMR system was on MGH and we had our local head grading coil that, that Eric made. And, but I, we realized two years later though, we could have done, you know, easily, you know, low resolution echo planar uh, using the standard gradients, um, you know, it worked. We actually tried the experiment later. And, and actually when Eric went first, went to San Diego, they didn't have a gradient coil. They just did that. They just did low resolution echo planar on the standard gradients. And it was fine. It was low resolution, but it was great. So it's interesting that, yeah, the, the thought of needing that um, uh, was there, but of course- we
2: emphasize the importance of uh, echo planar. I mean, had there been no NMR at our center, I definitely would not have been able to do anything because it's like, uh, uh, unlike uh, Robbie's uh, 4T, when I ran the uh, flash, uh, flash, all I saw was big vessel, as you said, but because I didn't know about Bo at that time. I thought that as inflow, right? And also inflow, I'm sure plays a role, you know, uh, the T1 way to inflow. And then it dominates everything and it's impossible to tell you know there's something in the visual cortex but you don't really know is it really yeah. something or it's just a large vessel you know coming in inflow so i would have complete be uh, lo- uh been lost in trying to do something with it so yeah, and
3: that t1 stuff really i mean for a long time well, a long time, for a few years anyway, certainly people, there was still a lot of controversy over, you know, whether fMRI, I'll now call it, was was actually bold effects or inflow effects. Because many people using flash, and, and I think Jens Fromm was a good example, were using fairly high flip angles. And of course you were getting very strong T1 weighting in that case. Uh, and so, you know, there were a lot of sort of inconsistent results. And when I did the multi-echo experiment, we used a very low flip angle because we were worried and we could see the M naught intercept. So you could tell what was in increase in blood volume or, or blood flow that depending upon what you did with your flip angle and what was T two star based on the multi-echo decay. Uh, and again, that was easy to do with flash, because it's easy to do multi-echo experiments with, with flash. Um, they would never have, have worked had we not had shielded gradients by that time, though, because it was just too noisy otherwise.
2: Yeah. I also want to uh, talk about an experiment. I want to give credit to David Kennedy on, on the uh, May 3rd experiment, because, because Jack didn't, for some reason, I don't know why Jack didn't come to uh, that experiment, but I always knew that I didn't want to do, uh, do Jack's experiment because he used shadow, right? I, I did, didn't want to touch an external uh, ghetto stuff. And then, uh, and, and so I didn't know where the visual cortex is, to be honest, because I didn't participate in Jack's experiment. And so, so I had to, but I, I, of course, David Kennedy was on the team, Jack's team. So I had to bring him down see, look, you know, where is the visual cortex? Where's the brain? You know? <laughs> well, I knew where the brain is, but where, where's the, uh, all that? Uh, so so without him, I wouldn't even be able to isolate the slide. At that time we can only do single slice, right? Uh, we're not doing multi-slice, mm-hmm. as I remember. So he helped me find the visual cortex, so I, I could identify it, then we could run the experiment. Otherwise, again, that would not work. So for that that night, that particular night, everything came together perfectly. With very little effort from me, we just ran it with uh, Derek Kennedy's help, uh, Richard Pansele's help, and we just got the results just like that. It's amazing, yeah.
0: So just out of curiosity, so you know, what was all of your feelings? I mean, I, I can speak for myself, but what was all your, you know, when you saw those first results and you kind of hit you that you were convinced it was real, and you're kind of thinking, you know, the implications. That, what was your, you know, what was your feeling? What would you do that?
3: Yeah. <laughs> we went we went for a drink um, we went to a bar called Sally's, which was very close to the CMRR, uh, with our subject um, who uh, <laughs> was this interesting kind of stoner dude um <laughs> but who who hung around the lab uh sorry if you're listening um <laughs> <laughs> I don't think he's in science anymore, but we wouldn't let him have a dream because we were worried that if we went back and tried to reproduce the experiment, that, you know, things would fail. But we had kind of a separation of responsibilities by that point. So um, either Sanji Kim, or I were typically running the scanner. Uh, and David Tank was doing all the analysis. So that's why I almost never have any results in my lab books. I have only lists and lists of problems and things that I needed to work on. But, yeah, we went. We had a drink. We were absolutely 100% convinced, uh, but it wasn't the first try. Like in Ken's experiment, it was probably the, you know, 10th try. Uh, even though we were doing all the things right, uh, it was just overcoming the the scanner instability. And then we went back and did the experiment again, and it worked again. And so we were very convinced. And that was before the ISMRM. So we knew, um, even when Tom gave his talk, I mean, we had data that looked just like that. Actually, it looked nicer because it was higher resolution. uh, So it didn't look quite so pet-like.
1: And and that's what you told me when we met in the airport.
3: Yes, in San Francisco.
1: Francisco, And I remember how how, uh, how disappointed you were that you weren't able to talk about those results yet?
3: I, I was actually more excited that it was meeting Bob Turner. But <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> 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 because there's only this guy I had,
3: I mean, I'd seen his talks, I'd seen him get up and you know ask really interesting questions at conferences. And I'd read several of his papers by that point. And I knew the gradient-coil papers I knew from even before, because I'd built a gradient-coil as a graduate student in Peter Allen's group. Uh, but it wasn't target field. Um, I mean, I gave up on target field. and just used simple Maxwell pairs and stuff. But so I knew this guy, this giant in the field, um, and I was just, we were sitting in the airport waiting for our planes. And I was happy to be talking to, to I was a postdoc and talking to, you know, the great Bob Turner. <laughs> so the whole, F, the, the bowl thing, but you're right, I was quite disappointed. I was, I was sad because I knew we had results, but we didn't have yeah. a platform to present them.
2: Yeah. yeah yeah Ken. And, how about yourself until- oh well, well of course I was happy because uh, who can't be happy when you see a result right away right how yeah. rare is that you know it's so uh oh I, I take it back i when I did animal experiment co2 i saw a result right away too so I, but I didn't expect to see it in humans so quickly and it, it, as I said I didn't expect to see anything because the who knows? it could be one percent and the noise could be really huge, you know. The fact that I did see something so clearly was uh, certainly very satisfactory. But I I wasn't thinking of bright future implications like Jack would usually think, uh, Jack thinks big things, right? I wasn't thinking about that. I was just happy experiments over. Uh, It was a short experiment. Uh, The uh, subject in the scanner was my friend from a graduate student from MIT. So, uh, but after that, I
1: think we just left. Yeah, I remember, though, don't you remember, Ken, that when I came up to MGH in July of that year, and um, I I volunteered for your your experiment uh, with the breath hold and then visual stimulation. And so I was a subject, and I remember you showing me the subtraction data straight away when... I got out as a scanner. For me, that was the um, perhaps the most exciting thing I've ever seen in my life. And I remember on that occasion, um, there were other people around like um, Mark Cohen and I think Jack. And we, on that occasion, we we actually did go up and have a celebration lunch in, yeah. the, in that restaurant on the, on the front on the on the pier at Charlestown. It was I remember it you have to go upstairs to to get to it. And that that was that was a um, I remember what a heady sensation that was yep. at that time. That yep. sort of sense that, gosh, this is really cracked now. This is this is a completely non invasive way of looking at what's going on in the brain in some detail.
0: Yeah. in real time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, God, Robbie. No,
3: I, I, I completely agree with Bob. I mean, we, we, I was really gobsmacked by this. I mean, obviously it should have worked. You know, Seiji had papers on this and they were actually quite high resolution because they were done on a 70 animal scanner and, and so on. But that the fact that you could do this in a human was extraordinary. And, you know, I remember looking at, at Jack's original, you know, the GAD paper and, and then, you know, the, the data that Tom had presented and thinking, well, you know, those are re- really low resolution. Is it really any better than a PET scanner? But because Flash was higher resolution, you could actually begin to think about, oh, we could do columns, we could do layers maybe, we can look at. Fine structures that pet can't do. Uh, And of course now with EPI and and high fields, I mean, you can do all of this actually far better than those original flash experiments, Uh, but you're still dominated by the same demons, you know, uh, big vessels for bold anyways. Um, uh, And now we have vaso and things like that, which have other issues in in terms of speed, but at least now you have multiple techniques you can play with. And so yeah, I was um, you know, like you said, right at the beginning, this is this is thirty well, oh, this is thirty-one years uh, well thirty years. Um, and it's still going strong. I mean it's it's yeah. extraordinary. I mean who who would have thunk?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, right for myself too. I mean, I remember, I remember actually the first results were great for me. I mean, I would, I mean, maybe the second results, but then they were pretty good, but I remember doing one really clean experiment of just right hand, left hand, and then both hands. And then, you know, we had just revised our RF coil and it was like, and it just looked beautiful. And I remember I was by myself, I was actually processing the data in the, in the basement of GE and, and, uh, and, and I, you know, would see this movie. And I, when I saw this movie, it's like, it was just overwhelming. It was like, oh my God, well, I, I have a thesis project. That's great. I have, you know, I can work on this, but then, uh, right. I mean, the, I just, I felt like I would never tire of, and I still have never tired of looking at the bold signal, the fMRI signal changes. I always, it's a thing of beauty for me. So, um, yeah, let's go on. A, let's go on a little bit. Um, uh, so, um, Just to just to go this a little bit, take this a little bit further. So, um, what was your first public? I mean, I know that uh, Ken's first public presentation was with Tom Brady, but I mean, I'm kind of curious. I mean, I I gave. I remember. I remember my first publication. I'll just start this off really quickly. Is that it was the it was I wanted to present it soon, so I submitted to the SMRI abstract. uh, You know that when ISMRN was divided into two societies, and it was in New York. Uh, at that, that time, at the at the Hilton, and I remember, you know, practicing that talk. You know, I was looking at the echo time dependence, spin echo versus gradient echo dependence, and I was trying to really establish it as a real thing. And I remember the night before, I remember I practiced that talk like thirty times with 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 Eric. And I was, it was my first presentation too. I was a gra- like I said, I was a second year graduate student, and I remember being so unbelievably like it, it was like the night before someone you know, getting married or something. I mean, I felt like, oh my God, this is, I'm gonna give this talk tomorrow. And, and it's, you know, I'm going to, this is my first presentation of this, is this is gonna be crazy. This is gonna be, so, you know, I was incredibly nervous. I remember being at the Hilton and finally it worked out well. Ken was in the audience. It was another talk by Michael Staling. Um, uh, Fulborn was in the audience, you know, saying, oh, it's good that you looked at the echo time. And so then from then on, that's where I first met Ken as well. So that was my first public presentation. So yeah,
2: yeah I, I don't but by the way people may wonder we we found the um, the, the response in in, in in May why didn't we publish it soon uh, there were a number of reasons. Uh, uh, first <clears throat> I was really worried that it was an artifact you know and mm. that's why I wasn't too happy I thought oh that could be just uh, an artifact so next couple of days I was actually, uh, turning on the goggle on the Phantom, you know, and see. Right? <laughs>
3: <laughs> we we did exactly the same experiments because I thought it could be the grass goggles that were somehow but, interfering with with the signal.
2: So, although looking back, it wasn't likely, but there were cases the whole brain would light up, right? Not just uh, just the visual cortex. So, but didn't think of it at that time. And then I I did uh, Mark Cohen and another person. And then, of course, Bob came and he was one of the best activators. Uh, So that really nailed the, but then I had uh, several people, right? And I was pretty sure I could publish it. And then Jack said, no, you cannot publish it. I think he was thinking that it's just a reproduction of what he did, or at least Mm -hmm. phenomenally speaking. And he didn't think was good enough. So he kept on asking me to do some other experiments. Like uh, in, in the paper, we, we, we changed the uh, intensity of the uh, checkerboard, I think. Uh, and, and then varying things and he wanted me to try the motor thing. And then it's kind of you know, delayed when you do more and more experiments. So, and then of course uh, you probably re- read it that uh, when we tra- when I tried to submit the abstract to ICMM and I knew I personally, Brought it to the airport before midnight, you know, to beat yep. the deadline. And then it never got to ISMIM, right? For some reason, they lost it. Wow. So that's why last minute we scrambled, bring the data up and have uh, Tom Bailey present it. Otherwise, it would have been. I assume they would accept it. Of course, there's no guarantee they would accept the abstract. But uh, so that's
0: just crazy. Yeah, that I can't believe that happened like that. <laughs> and
2: I knew we had a. Uh, I brought in like five uh, abstracts with other people. we rushed to the airport and I think all of the other abstracts were accepted if I remember except mine it might just disappear in the thin air But That's whatever very weird.
1: and then when the um, paper was because I was a, became a co-author on that on that first paper that was submitted to nature. Um, Nature rejected it, largely because they, it was a temporary editor. The the main Nature <clears throat> editor had retired, and they had not appointed a successor yet. Hmm. So we and had a so similar there a issue. Stand, there was a stand-in editor at Nature, and, and um, he had absolutely no idea how important this book was.
3: Um, yeah, so uh, we I, I know exactly. Yeah, it's the, probably the same one. Uh, I'm not sure whether he was standing or not, but we also submitted to Nature. So unlike Peter, uh, both MGH and Minnesota were a little greedy and and uh, thought this this is where we should go. I did not even know any
0: better. but uh. <laughs>
3: <laughs> And so we submitted. So it, it was uh, Charles Jennings was the editor at the time. Um, at nature and he he didn't even send it out to review because uh as far as he was concerned the science cover from the previous year was was it and and you know this didn't matter but i know many years later um when he was i guess he was probably editor of nature neuroscience at the time uh, but when seiji retired from bell labs he actually wrote a note um, to Seiji, saying, of all the papers I rejected in my tenure uh, at Nature, this is the one I regret the most. Uh, it probably would have equally well applied to the MGH one, but you guys weren't retiring yet.
1: Uh. <laughs> A few years later, after the film got going in London, uh, Charles Jennings came to visit us, and I had the enjoyable experience of scanning him uh, oh. and <laughs> analyzing, analyzing his brain and picking out uh, activation in MT, a mm-hmm. um, moving, moving target. So, and he had a, a slightly banana-shaped brain, as it turns out. His, if you take an axial section, he, his 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 um, um, hemispheric interhemispheric fissure was slightly curved. I just still remember that. But we, he was able to put his his brain on. The first issue of Nature Neuroscience, which you become editor.
3: Mm -hmm.
1: And so that's that little story. Um, But he did apologize for the uh, uh, failure to, uh, uh, for that, uh, the uh, MGH submission to get reviewed. Well, I
3: I suspect they were both on his desk um, at more or less the same time. So, I mean, it was obviously a. a deliberate decision based on the fact that science had already published you know as far as he was concerned the same thing a year earlier you know on the cover no less and so mm-hmm. he didn't see the advance in something that was non-invasive i suspect and uh, that's incredible yeah
0: that's that's that truly is an incredible uh, i mean i can't even imagine right that oversight uh, <laughs> saying oh this is completely non-invasive sure it's looking at brain activation but but yeah it's interesting
2: in in a sense i can see that nature always wants something kind of sexy novel uh you know kind of make the news you know if it looks like had been published before why bother yeah
3: yeah yeah. Well, the MRM doesn't care
0: about sexy. So there you go. Right. They just, yeah, I just remember, right. Just, um, you know, trying to write it up as fast as I can and getting good results and trying to be convinced. And, and it took me a while to go back in literature to really look at the models. Um, uh, I remember, you know, digging into, you know, Fizelle doing susceptibility modeling and trying to really come up with a, mo- you know, an explanation for why this should happen. And right. i uh, looking at Peter Fox's uh, work yeah. And, and then it was ready to go. And I just, like I said, I wasn't even really thinking, I, you know, I was really just a second year graduate student, this thinking, I just, I would love to just get this out fast and not even thinking that it was, I would, I knew it was high impact, but I didn't think, Oh, I'm going to, I didn't even, it didn't even actually, to be honest. Yeah. It didn't even occur to me. I just submitted to, as a communication to MRM and that was it. And, <laughs> um,
2: yeah. we yeah. Played a Peter Fox in, in the paper, uh, and I should say I, I didn't mention the paper, of course, but, but you know, Jacks are talking with Peter to to kind of give a model to why the signal would go that way. So yeah,
0: yeah, the 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 oxygen extraction fraction um, right went went down, and and I and I remember trying to sort of put numbers on that and and thinking okay, and then yeah, yeah. and
3: we had you know we we'd been sage had already been thinking about that a lot, and and we were working on simulations on on our you know, slow Sun computers, and you know the year after we had this biophysical journal paper that had a lot of details, and it it was it was a different angle than what people. Uh, so Bob Weiskopf was doing something similar, mostly with contrast agent as opposed to blood. Uh, so there's some slightly different approximations that occur, but you know most of the. Vascular physics and everything was, was actually quite similar. So Sage and I were doing these plots as a function of field strength, as a function of extravascular or intravascular space, um, as a function of oxygen extraction fraction. So all those curves were in that original biophysical journal paper. That was
1: a good paper. There.
0: That was a great paper. That was a great paper. I really, yeah. In fact, we. You know when I tried to make my own simulations and working with Eric with the idea of, of this deterministic diffusion sort of approach. I mean, that's you know, it's funny when I, when you you know we'll get to this too, things that you're most proud of. I mean, it's really I remember I programmed up that simulation. That was one of the hardest things I did for my thesis, was <laughs> I was just learning C at the time. And so I programmed up as I was learning C and and uh um yeah, it matched up. And but that that was a great paper, the biophysics. Journal paper.
1: But coming back to this this mismatch between the oxygen extraction and blood flow, I think it wasn't until um, Rick Buxton came up with his 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 his, his work um, that it became really clear that why it was that blood flow had to increase so much to give the, the right amount of oxygen at the mitochondria. Yeah, it was it, because it was a passive process it, that uh, that. Moved the oxygen from the the red cells in there, so you had to have an excess of it mm-hmm. um, to get enough um, oxygen to to make the um, the the, um, uh, the, the Krebs cycle work properly.
3: Right. Um, yeah. But again, this was you know some of the oxygen probe people, and and you know the optical methods have gotten much better now, the fluorophores and so on. But even back then, and uh, I don't know whether Rick was was motivated by this or not, but there was a literature uh, really arguing about, you know, what is the the PO2 at the mitochondria? And, you know, some people said it was zero, some people said it was five millimeters, uh, but I think the general feeling was, as Bob said, that you needed to increase the the gradient to push the oxygen out, but not everybody, that was certainly our view, but I don't think in the biological literature that that was so well accepted at the time. Uh, but Rick picked that side, and 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 that's what he put into his his model.
0: Yeah. So, so just uh, let's let's uh, fast forward a little bit. Um, we've already been, you know, we certainly have time to talk more. But what I mean, all of you have been contributing to the field for the past thirty years uh, continuously. Uh, uh, what are some of the things that, that you're most proud of as far as what you've done, uh, other than the first discovery, you know, um, uh, you know, beyond that, what, what, what do you think would be like the, you know, something that you said, Oh, I, I did this. This is what I'm most proud of as far as further on in the field with FRI. Um,
1: <laughs> well, <laughs> I, mean, I, there's I a lot so of I,
0: things and it's all continuous, but,
1: uh, I'll start. Because this kind of is is one of the things that made so many other things happen, and I'm proud of the shielding equation, which uh, it specified how you can shield gradients so that you can switch them fast enough to do EPI, and that was the main reason for developing um, active shielding for gradient coils. That that goes right back to working with. Peter Mansfield in the 1980s
3: yeah but I think that goes but, as uh, as, yeah. as we talked about when we were talking with with uh Fran Schmidt and and uh Peter and um uh, in the previous broadcast I mean that shielded gradient influenced far more than just EPI it changed oh, sure. the face of clinical imaging as well
1: yes and yes. Um, anyway just to, to go down my own list I think um um, apart from, um, you know, the, the actually showing that, that bold worked at NIH and getting uh, uh, all of the NIMH people um, who were interested in brain imaging, very excited about that. I think that it, it, it I, I, was, I was particularly proud of the paper I wrote in 2002 about draining veins. Uh, showing just how bad the problem might be, and um, uh, basically it was a reassurance to people who were doing cognitive studies that it wasn't that bad a problem if you actually wanted to do the kind of studies that Ravi's been talking about, yes of course it was a problem and had, you had to do something about it, but it, it, it gave you a kind of um, uh, the worst case scenario which wasn't too bad. and then um i think um uh, other things that I've done over the over the years i'm, I'm quite proud of the uh, uh, mapping uh, myelin uh using proton beam spec, um, imaging showing that um there's this beautiful correlation between t1 and myelin density yeah I yeah. think that that that's something which I think is going to have huge implications in the future in terms of how we interpret fMRI data. Yes. It gives us a handle on exactly where we are in the brain. And that handle is still been used far less than it should be. Um, if we can't associate function with neural substrate, we can't really make good models.
0: Yeah. Yeah, There's. I see more work going in that direction, but you're right. Um, and and it's and it's interesting too because there's different approaches of looking at myelin directly with extremely rapid sequences looking at the rapid decay uh, versus just looking at um you know dividing t2 t1 by t2 or t2 star to look at you know indirectly my, myelin water um uh, but either way right the whole idea of trying to combine cytoarchitecture and myelin architecture with
1: if you want high resolution, you have to do something simple and T1
2: is a simple way to do it.
0: Right, 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 I completely agree.
1: <laughs>
2: <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, I, I forgot to mention that, of course, uh, before I did uh, T2 star, uh, the oxymiclobin, because of my interest in uh, perfusion, my first experiment is was actually with uh, DETRUS uh, ASL, right? Uh, Arterial spin laboring. Uh, yeah, yeah, and I did a uh, fair amount of work uh, on that uh, for, for years, but even today, I, I think there's still some problem in the mixing the bow effect and the uh, uh, ASL effect yeah. sequence. Uh, so, how to completely suppress the bow effect and see a more perfusion effect? I, I think it's an ongoing uh, research mm-hmm. question. Yes. Yeah, and I'm sure the, the the first image I show in a dynamic uh, MRI paper, the, the, the figure I show on a T1 wave uh, activation had, had both signal mixed in it. Although they are somewhat different because you can see the slope going up, it's not the same. So there's some perfusion effect, but I, now looking back, I, I do have a mixed effect over there. Uh, and, but that's a question that all asl people should pay attention
3: to yeah yeah i think for me you know i've been doing neuro now for 35 years um uh you know starting at 0.15t uh, in fact on a picker scanner and and now you know 7 and 9.4 uh so yeah i think i I'm, I'm probably most proud of sort of the you know the understanding of the signal sources, both from a modeling perspective, but also from an actually imaging them perspective. So that original multi-echo paper, I think, was really important. Uh, the push to higher fields because of the realization that that you can enhance, you know, the capillary signal uh, relative to these, um, you know, draining vein effects. So you know, brain versus vein started, you know, very shortly after the first bold um, human demonstrations and for me, uh, and I've been at it and I'm really pleased, you know, the way layer fMRI and and columnar work and so on are going, uh, particularly because uh, in 1993, yeah, 1993, I gave the uh, plenary talk at, at the SMRM. Yes, <laughs> and uh, I I said, you know, to do fMRI really well, you need to go to high, higher and higher fields, and and some of my colleagues, uh, I won't mention names, said, no, all you need is one and a half Tesla. That's all you need to do fMRI and i said well if you want to do fmri the way neuroscientists want to know about the brain you have to go higher but that was not a given at that point um there weren't a lot of high field scanners it wasn't even clear that they would ever continue to be because these 40s were all experimental um and so you know i feel you know vindicated in some way that uh yeah. We're all at, you know, 70 or higher. We're, we're using VASO and BOLD and all these amazing gradient technologies and RF technologies. I knew RF was going to be important, so I learned a lot about RF um, to the point that we now build coils for MGH. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'm... It, was, um, it uh,
1: was me, probably it was me that got you invited to... I was in the program committee. Yeah, I have no idea how that actually happened, Bob. (laughs) I I pushed for it. It was me that got you invited to do the plenary talk. Because it was extraordinarily... I had to to fight for it, too. Well, yeah, because I can't imagine a postdoc... An apathy young man, you know. Yeah, it was
3: the postdoc. I mean, uh, whoever invites a postdoc...
1: Almost everything you said.
3: Yeah, Yeah, I I remember... Bob was the chair of that session, I remember. And um, yeah, uh, yeah, it was, you know, who would ever invite a postdoc to give a Monday morning plenary at at the society? Uh, So thank you, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't know that.
0: Yeah, I remember listening to that. (laughs) And I remember my reaction, you know, is less of the content. But I mean, the content was all great. But I mean, my reaction was like, wow, he has." you were saying things in such a way that was like you had a lot of guts to, you know, you're putting things out there. Um, that I think that were that uh, probably you know. Um...
3: Well, you have no frontal cortex as a young person, right?
1: It
0: was all true. He was, it, yeah, he
1: was splendidly brash. He was. Right? Yes, <laughs>
0: uh, I
3: remember I, that I well.
1: Appreciated it. Many people didn't.
3: <laughs> yeah, many people didn't. I mean, the pet people were quite upset. I know some of the you know people who were still worrying and wanted to have tea at the time were were quite upset
2: uh and uh well field <laughs> needs more people like that yeah here, here we are <laughs> yeah well, on the question of high field i forgot was uh was it uh mark cohen who wrote the paper that high field doesn't help because the noise would go up the same way as your signal goes up you know uh and hmm. it was uh, a very interesting uh, uh view but of course now we know that the 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 resolution becomes so much better at high field so it contributes a lot
3: yeah i think i mean jens uh i don't remember mark being so against it but i i do remember mark hakey being very much against it um because he he was arguing that you know bold was dominated by vessels and it was the way he was doing it uh which was also at low field and and i remember in st louis they had the chance to buy, I think, one 3T or three one-and-a-half Ts. And he went with three (laughs) one-and-a-half (laughs) Ts.
1: Interesting.
0: Well, that's an interesting question. So, um, right. So, you know, obviously uh, going up to high field and, you know, we keep on going higher, we're trying to get 11.7 Tesla. Uh, You know, is there, you know, so even now uh, you start to feel that there's a plateau in what is optimal. It, what do you think is optimal um, as far as the future of field strength is concerned? Uh, Let's say we have the resources to do
2: Peter, Do you hear anything about Keith Philip once high field? I haven't heard anything that Yes. That? He, oh, yeah, he, that's uh, right. What happened? Oh, it, it
3: had a Brooker console on it briefly uh, because I think GE did not want to instrument it. And then I have no idea what happened.
0: Yeah, I have not heard about
3: I haven't heard about it in years.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I know, right. I mean, there's obviously the the, the one in, in Paris and uh, uh, NIH. We're coming back. Hopefully be ramping it up soon. And uh, um, right. And they're even talking about four. Well, I think, I mean, yeah. smart,
3: smart people are always going to figure out how to get around some of the problems of these. Uh, I think the case for us, and maybe we painted ourselves all into a corner, is Neuroscientists want to use these tools right away, and they're not ready for that prime time. You know, when I watch, you know, how developments occurred in Minnesota over the decades. You know, from the time you first got a scanner to the time it was really truly ready for prime time, it's half a decade to a decade sometimes, um, and so. The neuroscience advances that will be potentiated by your 11.7 or Camille's 10.5 or, or the the one at Neurospin, uh, these will probably be, you know, closer to my official retirement date, <laughs> even if I'm like Bob and keep going.
2: <laughs> I, I think but, yeah. I'm worried about the physiological limit though, like I did some work on inner ear, right, at 17. And we know at certain angle of your tilt of the head, the the bad effect will go away. Otherwise, the room will be spinning one way or the other, right? Unfortunately, you just have to adjust your head tilting certain angle, then then be fine. But that may be hard to because it's individually uh, different. Each person has to tilt at a different angle.
3: Yeah, and there uh, are eye movement issues coupled to that vestibular ocular, and we've had one of my mm-hmm. colleagues, Brian Corneil and Joe Gaddy, have measured this in the magnet with a binocular eye tracker, and you can measure them at 7T. So, so depending upon the precision of your vision experiment, what Ken is you about will also be important there.
1: Yeah, I think the calculations that David Feinbach did, which got him his big grant for the, for the um, new gradient coils and his, his scanner in, in Berkeley and the um, um, uh, really high um, uh, 128 um, receive channels and so on. I think I think those calculations are right, that actually you can soup up the seven Tesla to a point where you've got really fantastic resolution. You've got 0.4 millimetre isotropic resolution for, for for fMRI, which gives you a lot of power for layer-dependent studies. Yeah. And and yeah. you can, of course, do drop-dead beautiful structural scanning, which allows you to look at the bands of Biogé, the myelin layers in the cortex in many different places, and therefore get a, a kind of a dead reckoning, a real fiducial mark of where you are in the brain and yeah. then we can start to do some serious system level modeling and that hasn't really got into play yet and so i think that the harvest with a, a properly souped up seven tesla the harvest of scientific riches in in serious uh, neuro, neuroscience and uh, it
3: I think Bob is right, and I mean you know Jens, Jens from'
1: going to be huge and once said once they do, it, do, do this
3: first. yeah, Jens fromm once said that, that the best scanner is the one that you have that's a it's a thing that has stuck with me, or the best field strength I think is the one that you have, but i I actually think uh, uh and you know our highest field is seventy as well, that Bob is on the money here, and I don't even think Dave Feinberg has gone as far uh, as is possible. I, I actually believe that with not more channels, but with, with other things that we're working on here, inclu- including cryocoils for human 70, that you will achieve exactly what Bob is talking about, this marriage of high resolution fMRI on top of exquisite anatomic imaging. Um, and that may be the sweet spot for cost and, and the avoidance of the kind of physiologic effects that Ken is talking about. Um, and I think, you know, you do have to think about cost because if you want the broad neuroscience community to use these tools, then you can't just have one of these systems, you know, located at, at NIH or, or Neurospin or something. You have to be able to put 100 or what, 200 of these kinds of systems all over the world. Otherwise, you know, the impact that you have is limited.
0: Yeah. And I'm, I'm actually blown away with what's so far, like just along with Bob is saying, I mean, you have the high resolution, you're starting to make inroads with layer fMRI, but even still the the multimodal like if you have simultaneous EEG and then and then the sophistication of the processing uh, and then modeling what's going on I think there's there's so much that's just there uh, and it will just explode in terms of the number of insights yeah
3: so I you know layer fMRI right now and Renzo Huber and I have this uh, discussion all the time I think it's a misnomer uh, it's depth dependent FMRI right now, right. because right. you get two or three voxels across the cortex, uh, you can zero pad all you want.''re you're, you're, It's not layer fMRI, but I believe even at Seven Tesla, with advances that are coming in in things like compressed sensing, uh, in cryocoils, in you know one hundred and twenty eight channel RF coils, uh, in special head gradients, which don't hit the, uh, stimulation thresholds. You put all those things together and it
0: could truly be layer fMRI. Right. Right. Yeah. And that opens up, you know, an entire vista of questions, um, uh, with human, you know, with, you know, looking at input output, and then looking at all kinds of things. I mean, it's just, Another and background. I think,
3: you know, that can come in a scanner that is relatively affordable to lots of neuroscience centers.
0: Yes. Yeah. And hopefully the Berkeley, you know, Berkeley has sort of a prototype, you know, hopefully that will be successful mm-hmm. in that regard. And uh, yeah. Yeah. OK. Um, yeah. No. So um, so uh, so this is sort of overlapping with, you know, along the lines of uh the most, you know, your perspective on on the, the, the most significant advances. It's not just high field, like, you know, of course, resting state came along in 90, you know, 95. And uh, and then there's been all these other sort of advances along the years. Um, you know, what do you think was the most, uh, before we before we start to wrap up, what do you think is the most significant or the most impactful advance over the last 30 years in fMRI? Um,
2: well, we have to add that BISROWS uh, resting state <laughs> uh now, yeah. and that's certainly a breakthrough
3: and I think that was you know we blew it on that one totally I blew uh, it too yeah
2: uh, because <laughs> we
3: actually wrote about it in that biophysical journal paper Uh, because we had noticed that different areas seemed to correlate with one another. And we actually explicitly stated in that paper that this is a way of looking at functional connectivity. I mean, it's there in black and white, but we didn't do the damn experiment.
1: (laughs) Yep. Yeah. that's. You you were one of the first to recognize there was more physiological noise in the gray matter than there was in the white matter. That's the other, Uh, but yeah, we, we, um, um, uh, it, anyway, uh, that's a that's a fact now. But I, I think what I think is also totally game changing in the last few years is actually the representational similarity analysis, the, the MVPA um, uh, and the pattern analysis. Okay. Um, uh, because I think this moves us away from this strange idea that there are large blobs in the yeah. cortex with fuzzy edges. Uh, actually are are identifiable with the way that the brain is doing its task. Yeah. Probably not like that. And once we've been able to join up layer-dependent imaging with representational similarity analysis and started to think really hard about where are the input and output pathways, where are the top-down and bottom-up, other ways for any patch of cortex, then we're going to be doing some serious, proper science yeah. on, on yeah. how the cortex is actually I have come it. around yeah. to this,
3: actually. Because, you know, I, I I wasn't initially so convinced about that, but when, after Jorn Diedrichsen moved here, and I've seen what he's been doing on our 7 t um, and talking to him a lot over coffee and things like that, I've come around to to this as, I think... Uh, a really powerful way of addressing the questions that the neuroscientists want answered as opposed to you know the physicists who are you know doing subtractions and and you know blurring and and things like that yeah i think you should never be using blurring and i know bob agrees on this
1: yeah
0: i think we all agree on on <laughs> <yeah>. that one <laughs> But how are, you know, it's interesting with high field, I mean, these are all interesting questions, and we can just be talking for days on this, but, you know, how does one compare subjects, you know, how does one, uh, you know, you suddenly can't do spatial normalization because everything gets very different, it's like fingerprints at that field strength, I mean, at that resolution so how do you start to even begin? Well, I think Bob has the solution, right? So if you have the
3: cytoarchitectonic boundaries combined with functional localizers or other methodologies to put on that, then you actually know the truth in each subject. And these these average atlases and stuff will hopefully go away.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And hopefully the cytoarchitectonic boundaries are fine enough to sort of, you know, have okay. these
1: landmarks. I think the other other part of this strategy is to uh, develop really thought through really well-informed models of how the um, particular task is, is performed. And then the averaging you do is the averaging of the fitted parameters you get for each subject for these models. So you don't average the brains, you average the parameters yeah. you get out of the fits. Yeah. And that seems to me to be a, a scientifically much sounder way of doing it. It's the way we've yeah. done a lot of science in other other area, other fields. Averaging brains was a very, very sensible thing to do right at the beginning of all of this. If right. what people did with pet because they needed the signal to noise. It was Right a, and, and it way, didn't matter it with a, PET. Very, yeah,
0: because it was yeah. so low resolution.
3: Yeah. It was low resolution, so it didn't matter to have a probabilistic atlas or something like that.
0: Right.
1: But for about the last maybe decade, I would say, it's really that strategy has become kind of obsolete. And yeah. we, we need to move forward into something where we're taking advantage of knowing far, far more about the 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 circuitry and the micro circuitry. We're getting to know far more about the fact that there are that the horizontal fibres in the cortex uh, with the ones that are myelinated are generally inhibitory, for instance. Yeah. Which which, um, immediately offers an enormous um, scope in terms of understanding why some areas of the brain have far more horizontal fibres and some have far less. It, It must be something to do with how they actually work at the neuronal level and th- so we we can uh, really um use all of the information that mri can can provide to do some decent modeling and that, that that's a future that i'd love to see i i want to be alive in 10 years time to see <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah so i mean there's there's you know there's ultimate limits um and maybe this is a good one to i mean like I said, I would, this, we could talk for hours, but um, just to try to wrap it up, uh, you know, we can go on. Um there's, there's ultimate limits and there's these big challenges. I think, like for instance, uh, there's always a promise for having, you know, this incredible clinical relevance of fMRI and also to truly help uh, understand principles of brain function. So what do you think are, you know, look, maybe just ask all of you, um, you know, in terms of the potential, do you think we'll get there? Do you think fMRI, and if if so, how will it become more clinically relevant um, in any sort of way, looking at either the physiology or the brain function or biomarkers or whatever, or, and truly um, adding to our understanding of understanding the brain. You know, it's already done this, but you know, how, what are, do you think, where do you think it will go as far as those two things? Um, Anyone who wants to go first, because I'm always challenged with the clinical application. I, I think that you know, you need to have the nuts and bolts to, to actually get it, all the processing there. Uh, and there's different types. Of, I mean, certainly it's pre-surgical mapping is used now, uh, but you know, psychiatrists would love to use FMRI clinically and there's, there's no applications yet. Um, maybe for guiding neuromodulation, it might be useful, but um, I'm hoping for more.
3: Well, I think you need robust, it really needs to be robust, and fMRI is intrinsically a noisy technique, unfortunately. Um, You know, lots of the studies um, that point to particular, you know, default mode is suppressed in X, or, you know, area whatever is, is enhanced in Y those kinds of studies, you know, done on hundred or a thousand or UK Biobank sample size things, that's great. But then, of course, the challenge, as you say, is how do you bring this back to N equals one? Because that's what matters to the patient. Yep, And that's still uh, a a challenge. pre mapping is very robust, but, you know, if you want to eliminate the DSM-5 as a diagnostic criteria and use brain patterns instead I think we have a ways to go uh to make that robust uh unfortunately
2: yeah yeah I I think a difficulty is maybe fmi is too sensitive you know uh like you run a resting day uh scan you get different results at the beginning of the imaging session from the at the end of this imaging session huh and and that that's Always oh, true, you know, I, I ran three times, you look different, you know, because it is sensitive to maybe your mood, your your state of mind, your environment at that time, you know. So so so, so the advantage of its sensitivity also is, you know, challenge. How do you get the robust result? Like <laughs> Ravi said, if it changes, you know, right in front of your eyes. Uh, so I don't know how to do that. Now, of course, you like FMI to be light diffusion for stroke. So every patient yes. looks exactly the same, you know. Uh,
3: that's individual. right, that's the
2: model. Yeah, uh, yeah. How to achieve that, I don't know, maybe somehow you need to limit the sensitivity to a well, reasonable extent, yeah.
0: Or, or maybe, you know, obviously ways of controlling things as much as possible. And then after the fact, trying to measure and then calibrate um, as well as possible.
1: But um, it, that's, you know, that's a challenge. I think, I think that, that also there's a challenge when it comes to uh, fMRI and psychiatry there's a challenge in asking the right questions exactly it's a challenge it's an ontological question as to whether psychiatric disorders are natural kinds yep and um i think we have to as as brain as MRI scientists we have to help in creeping up on this question from both sides we 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 mm-hmm. have to help the Neuroscientists make models which could explain the behavioral phenomena that we see in psychiatric diagnosis. Yeah. And yeah. Um, the, the, we then have to try to be able to find clear cut distinctions between subjects who have clear cut differences in their symptoms in terms of how the different parts of the brain are actually working, particularly those parts of the brain that we call social brain, because the whole brain is social brain anyway, but there are some which are more, some parts of the brain which are more involved in negotiation of boundaries and, and uh, 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 conformity to social rules and so forth. Um, um, and once we develop greater power of, of modeling. So for instance, the idea of the, um, of the hierarchy of the prefrontal cortex going from the posterior to the anterior where thinking becomes more and more abstract and the the um, uh, difference between the uh, lateral frontal cortex and the medial frontal cortex in terms of lateral is the outside world and the medial is, believe it or not, the inside world. Um, once, we, once we've started to establish those kind of relationships and worked out how that plays out in terms of the microcircuitry and what we can learn from our tools about how that microcircuitry interacts with the function, then we might just possibly be able to define in, hand in hand with a psychiatrist what are the natural kinds. Yeah, they correspond to the psychiatric disorders and so that's 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 my hope Um, is partly why I got into this in the first place, because I actually care about this question, but I see I completely agree with you, we have a long way to go, I agree with Ravi in that respect, but I think that what it does need is for people to take seriously the quality of the data that we as MRI scientists are already able to offer. And it's not being used yet properly.
0: Yeah, I would actually, yeah, I totally agree. I was just having this conversation where, you know, it's sort of the data are sort of forcing us to sort of step back and 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 refine or or reallocate our questions, you know, like things like attention. You know, we always thought, oh, you know, there's attention. There's an attention area in the brain. And then, but it's, it's much more complex than that. And it's uh, delineated in different ways. And so maybe if we do that both for the, Brain And also clinical questions like, you know, the DSM-5, you know, it's, there's different traits and and maybe it's, it's, it's divided up differently that way. And maybe there's, there's functions that are, 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 are very indicative of things that we just haven't really asked, like you said, asked the right clinical or brain function question to sort of frame it in a way that it comes out.
3: You know, there are efforts like RDOC, which are kind of starting to move in that way, but they're not informed by imaging scientists as, as uh, Bob was I think really stating. So if you're going to use imaging as part of your diagnostic, then, then you need to have people thinking about that. Um, just like you wouldn't write DSM five or six now without a psychiatrist. Right. So,
0: yeah. All right. Well, um, well, just, uh, you know, we're winding down here, but, um, uh, do you have any more, any more things you just want to add? I mean, I, I actually just wanted to, al- I always like to add when I talk about the histories that I feel lucky, you know, I feel lucky to be in the right place at the right time and trying to you know, have the opportunity to make the most of this. And I think the field, you know, we're all lucky. Anyone who uses fMRI is lucky. You know, it's a magic, it's a wonderful technique and it's, it works. And um, we're just trying, we're all trying to make the most of it and push it. So I don't know if you, any of you guys, want to add anything else but it's we could have many more conversations and <laughs>
3: <laughs> well I, I'm definitely lucky too you know there's there is a lot of serendipity in life um being in the right place right time. you know I, I'm lucky to have stepped into this field when I did at its birth uh but I think I'm also lucky just to have met a lot of smart people like you guys and many others who have informed my ideas, you know, convinced me to change directions sometimes or look at a problem from a different perspective. That's essentially informed my entire career. And, uh, you know, that's maybe even the bigger piece of luck.
1: Yeah. I feel I just want to say this, that um, talking about the people one has met. Uh, I just want to acknowledge the huge debt I have to some people who passed away, Jack Bellower and Leslie Ungerleider, um, people who really had a fantastic attitude to discovery in science and vision. And I think that, that, um, I I hope that that research in this field and every field carries on um, in a form in which the insight of such people can be respected and and and, and developed and worked on because they not many people like them
2: yeah again going back to when i did that diffusion back in 88 89 and that time uh, i always said that we had an answer looking for a problem now that was before stroke, you know, discovery. And Mm -hmm. of course, after stroke, everything changes. But before, when the diffusion, all these beautiful pictures, what does that mean, you know? How does it help us, you know? So you never know, you know, in the future, FMRI will find its place, and maybe the new technique will come along. Like the resident day technique right now is very hard to use for for diagnostics, you know? The connectivity could go up, could go down, you can interpret one way or the other way, but, then because the big advance is now you do have a network. So on multiple networks and how we use it, it would be up to the wisdom of the younger generations as well as us you know, going yeah. forward. Yeah.
3: yeah, it is. I mean, this is the beauty of MRI, I think, you know, that you know, every five to ten years there is a quantum leap, you know, so nobody predicted FM you know, fMRI really, and then all of a sudden it popped on and it hasn't gone away. Nobody predicted diffusion imaging and all of a sudden it showed up and it hasn't gone away. Nobody predicted parallel imaging and it all of a sudden popped up. And it's it's been essential for all kinds of imaging, including the kinds we're talking about. And, and other things will pop up that, you know, we haven't even anticipated yet because it's such a flexible technique. I mean, you can only really do one thing with a CT scanner or a PET scanner uh, because their contrast mechanisms are fixed. But yeah. MRI is not like that.
0: MRI keeps on giving. I mean, it keeps on, you yeah. know, even still, we don't completely understand, you know, what causes T1 or other other sort of sources of contrast. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's that's that really is the amazing part about MRI um, as far as that's concerned. It's so much information still there. And I, I totally agree. Um, I'm lucky as far as to, to have known to, to still be knowing uh, all of you and, and definitely the whole community. It's a, it's really, you're right. I mean, a lot of, there's something special, I think about this community is that we're we all kind of feel fortunate and we're all working together. I think there's really good people and really people who give their time and, and it's also the interaction with the brain mapping community with the MRI community too. It's just you get the advantage of both of these. So hopefully it'll keep on going and growing as well. So all right. Well um thank you uh very much for for coming on. I think I think a lot of people will will definitely appreciate uh this podcast and uh hope maybe we'll have other ones uh, uh maybe we'll bring you on as a to, as a panelist to to talk more about other things so um all right well thank, thank you. you thank you
2: it's good seeing you guys it
3: was great to see you
0: guys yeah. Yeah.
1: thank good you, to see you. Peter. it's a wonderful opportunity and it's really great to see Ravi and Ken again
0: yeah, yeah, it's.
1: I, I owe so much to Ken. He's one of the best people I've ever collaborated with.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes, definitely. All right, thanks. Bye bye.
1: Neurosalience is brought to you by the Organization for Human Brain Mapping. This week's episode was produced by Anastasia Brovkin and Niels Mullert.